Today's episode begins a month-long series of bettering ourselves and bettering our careers. And we're starting off with a look at public relations and how we can promote ourselves and the projects we create or are a part of. And Lisa Goldberg is here to guide us through this somewhat daunting process. There was no idea of this everyday, all day self-promotion, no matter who you are. So I think that that kind of changes the whole demographic of the human race now, you know? Welcome to Why I'll Never Make It, featuring conversations with fellow artists about the realities of life in the arts and challenging the notion of what it means to make it. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, and if you'd like to support the ongoing work of this podcast, you can go to donate.winmepodcast.com, where you'll not only have my deepest gratitude, but you'll also have access to special supporter-only episodes. Again, that's donate.winmepodcast.com. Well, like I said, this is the first episode in a new series on the podcast, Bettering Ourselves and Bettering Our Careers. And today's guest provides a great example of both. Hi, I'm Lisa Goldberg, and I own LSG Public Relations out of New York, London, and L.A., She represents actors, writers, directors, choreographers, both nationally and internationally, who have won Emmys and Golden Globes, Grammys and Tony Awards. She's also represented companies and charities as well. But she hasn't always just been talking about other performers. When she first came to New York, she was a dancer herself, pounding the pavement and putting herself out there. So is that where she learned the art of publicizing and promoting herself and her talents? No, absolutely not. And I, I don't even know that that was something I even knew about or if it was something people really did. I, I was aware, like every time I would do a show, you know, if I was on tour or something, that the leads in the show were suddenly doing kind of local TV or local radio, wherever we were. But it was kind of one of those things that, you know, went in one ear and went out the other. It was just like, oh yeah, so-and-so is doing an interview tomorrow morning. Oh, okay. I guess that means they're not coming out with us tonight. You know, it was that kind of thing. So it was never anything I gave any thought of, to be honest. Not at all. Yeah, because uh, for us in the ensemble, we're, we're never really privy to those kind of discussions or events. Yeah. And also, I mean, y- you know, it wasn't yesterday. So <laughs> it's been a while. Yeah. So things have changed and there was no social media. So there there was no idea of this everyday, all day self-promotion, no matter who you are. So I think that that kind of changes the whole demographic of the human race now, you know? And your performing background, though, really gave you insight. Once you did go kind of on on the other side, more behind the scenes, it really gave you an insight uh, and kind of a leg up on those that may not have been performers. I hope so. I think so. I'm not sure how much of a leg up necessarily, but certainly like when I'm connecting to my clients or potential clients in a first meeting, I, I, I can understand almost exactly what they're going through at all different times because I've, you know, I've been a chorus girl. I've been a, you know, semi lead in something I've, I did some TV and film. Uh, 
you know, so like whatever it is, their genre that they're in, I can understand what they're going through. And I think that that makes it an easy shorthand between two people to work together. Now, eventually your performing career came to a stop and you had to leave the city. What, what exactly happened there? So I was performing for quite a while, working all the time. And then I got sick. You know, I developed some bad um, stomach issues and autoimmune issues. And eventually I just couldn't dance anymore. So I had to um, move back to South Carolina for a short while and, and live with my parents and get some help. And we went to Mayo Clinic and they helped me out a lot. And, you know, it was a, a pretty shitty time, to be honest, Um and certainly I've been working my entire life for this one career dream that I had started achieving. And now that was being taken away from me by, you know, no choice of my own. And that's a hard thing to, to reconcile with. Um, but so when I got to a better place and was in like a sort of remission of sorts, um, I was able to move back up to New York. And then I had to start all over again. I didn't feel comfortable or physically able to go back into auditioning. You know, my agent had, had moved to like CAA in LA and, um, I just, you know, I wasn't in the same shape and I thought, okay, well now I have to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. Now, when you first came back to New York, was performing still a thought like, okay, maybe I can't dance and do this. Maybe I could do other things. Were you still hoping that that could be a possibility? Um, well, no, I mean, I don't know that I ever gave it a I mean, I was so sick first for a while that it just wasn't even, it wasn't in, in the realm of my thinking. Like, I think I just thought that when I moved back up, I, I had to find something else to yeah. do. I don't think I had the stamina or the energy um, to go through all that dancing or otherwise. I mean, I certainly acted as well. I would go out on film and commercial stuff all the time prior to that. Uh, I also had many agents and casting directors that would say things to me like, you know, you're too pretty to be the funny looking friend and you're not pretty enough to be the lead girl. You know, I got that a lot. Don't you love that? No, no matter our looks, our size, our age, it's like yeah. you're, you're to this, but not enough that. And then it's like, yeah. but it seems like we're all in the middle of somewhere where none of us are actually one or the other. Yeah. I mean, I, apparently I wasn't, I don't know. I was pretty, <laughs> but like, not you're that pretty. pretty. The, you're pretty for the DMV, but <laughs> I'm not so sure you're pretty for this. Anyway, uh, fuck you. You know what I mean? But right, um, right. So yeah, I just don't know that ever. Get, I, I, I don't know. That's a good question. I've never thought about that. Like moving back up. Why didn't I think about a different area of going into that didn't involve dance? I have no idea. <laughs> but what Lisa did know is that once she was well enough, she knew she wanted to come back to New York City. The question was, what would she do? What kind of job could she find? And a friend of a friend had a restaurant in Chelsea. And um, I went in to meet him thinking that I was going to get a job waiting tables. And he ended up hiring me to do his in-house PR with no prior experience. I had no idea what I was doing. But as it turns out, like, Apparently, you know, if you're a good schmoozer on your own behalf in regular life, you know, you can pretty much do that for somebody else and get paid for it. So that was kind of a nice little gig to find out. And 
And so obviously he, he knew you and, and I guess figured that you could talk and promote and, and were good at that. You know what? He did not know me. He had never <laughs> met me before. Interesting. So how did he make that connection of someone that he doesn't know to be like, hey, promote us? I have no earthly idea. So he funny. took a liking to me. I guess I charmed him, although he was and is one of the most charming individuals on the planet. So he, he beats us all in the charming department. But um, yeah, his name is Brian Matzkow, and he owned a restaurant named Sapa. And he just said, hey, okay, here's what you're going to do. I'm going to hire you as a manager, but you're going to be a PR manager. And we do have an outside PR company, but I'm not so sure I'm digging them at the moment. So I just want you to do it. You just take it over. And here's how you're going to do it. And he just threw me a bunch of papers, which I don't even remember what they were. But And, and I just kind of took it from there. And the next thing I know, I was booking you know, movies and TV shows to shoot inside the restaurant. We were negotiating deals where the, you know, Bruce Willis would have to say the name of Sapa in the movie or Colin Firth had to show the front of the menu of Sapa in his movie. And it was just, it was kind of crazy. It just spiraled. And I was very lucky, you know, I mean, Brian certainly gave me my next career. I'm, I'm eternally grateful to him. And uh, people like George Clooney's publicist, Stan in LA, who um, I was just driving him nuts trying to get George Clooney into the restaurant for a premiere party for a film he had coming up. And Stan finally said, you know, I cannot get George in the restaurant, but I do appreciate, <laughs> you know, your hard work on this. Right. <laughs> and here's, here's how I'm going to help you. And so he actually turned around and was like, I think you know what you're doing. I think you're smart. I think you should have your own firm and you know, I'm going to help you do that. And he, he, he did, he gave me a ton of advice and, and things to look at that helped me create my own firm. And it started from there. And so, I mean, they're two of the main men who really are the reason why I have the business I have today, almost 14 years later. Yeah. I mean, it was really just kind of trial by fire. You, you were thrown into the deep end and you just had to figure out how to, how to stay afloat. Yeah, it was dumb luck. And thankfully, I was good at it. And I like it. And, um, you know, I lucked into a chance. Yeah. Now, it's interesting, as you brought up that George Clooney publicist, is there that fine line between selling a client, selling yourself, and then being too pushy and turning people off? Oh, absolutely. I don't even know that it's a fine line. I'm sure it's a very thick line. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like, do not cross. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I think that, um, it certainly would annoy the hell out of me. I, I can tell you that. I mean, it, you know, if you get two no's, that's, that's time to go away. Um, I didn't know what I was doing in my own defense, you know? So, and I think I was like hawking him in a charming way, if that's possible. <laughs> Again, I don't know for whatever reason, luck on my side, Stan took a liking to me <laughs> and said, I'm going to help you out. And thank wow. God he did. But yeah, I just got lucky because I'm sure if I did that to Stan today, he would be like, stop emailing me. <laughs> well, but now, now your clients range from, from writers, directors, choreographers, companies, nonprofits. And so is there a, a common or uniform kind of checklist in representing them all? Or is it just a, a different process altogether from one to the next? Half and half. Um, for me, the way I run my business, I mean, it's mostly just me that you get 
when you sign a board, I have three or four freelancers in New York and two in LA and one in London, all of which are great. Um, but I'm the one who takes the meeting. I'm the one who decides the clients. I'm the one who signs on with them and spends 95% of the time with them. So I feel like for me, it's a very personal connection that you have to have with the person or the project or the group to be able to represent them in the way I want to do it. So for me, it's more about, first of all, do I like the person, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and no, you don't have to like, like someone, you know, on a regular basis to be able to work with them. But, but it is a very personal relationship with a publicist and you spend so much time together that part of that is very important. So first, do I like this person? Do I think that this person is going to, um, listen to me and listen to my ideas and is this a project that I feel like I want to work on and that I feel like I can tell a good story about and it's all it really is all about whether or not it's a story I want to tell for that person because it can be a, a singular project or show or something like that but then you could also represent a client just for years ongoing no matter what they're doing right it can go Correct. either way Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then in that case, you're building the brand of that person or that organization, you know, so, but it all comes back to kind of the same middle ground. And like any relationship, as, as you said, there needs to be that, that kind of like that commonality, like any relationship differences will arise. And are there clients that you eventually have to let go of for one reason or another? Absolutely. And I always say to anybody I'm working with, you know, if there's, if there's something I strongly believe in that you should or should not do, I'm going to make that very known. But at, at, at the end of the day, I hate that. I hate when people say at the end of the day, um, at the end of the day, uh, it's their decision, you know? It, it, and, and I do say that to them. I'm like, but you're the one who's going to make the final decision and whatever it is, it is just know I have told you the consequences from my perspective of a or B. And if they choose not to listen, that's completely their choice. There's nothing I can do about that. I won't argue till I'm blue in the face, but I will, I will push something hard and make it clear verbatim. Please note, I am pushing this hard for a reason. And I want you to consider this again before we make a final decision. And that's as far as I'll go. Ten years ago, I was in the process of looking for a side job myself and happened upon a job posting from a nonprofit called Only Make Believe. And they were looking for help in their office. What started out as a volunteer position eventually led to part-time work and a very special connection with this organization that brings interactive theater into children's hospitals and care facilities. In season two, I interviewed founder Dina Hammerstein, as well as actors from the Only Make Believe team. And every year they hold a gala fundraiser, which is where I first met Lisa. She brought in clients to both attend as well as perform in that yearly star-studded event. So I was curious how her work for a nonprofit like OMB differed from other companies. Well. I mean, for only make-believe, I just love the organization so much. And um, 
know, Joe DiPietro is a client of mine and Joe is on the board and very involved and very close with Dina, who it's her charity. And so he's the one who introduced Dina and I originally when they were looking for some new PR to come in. And that was probably, I don't know, eight years ago or something. And, um, it was just, uh, it's just an amazing organization and a project that I wanted to, to be able to selfishly feel a part of. I wanted to help these kids. I wanted to do anything I could to raise money and bring a light to what this organization is doing. So it was just as much something that I just wanted to be a part of. I mean, if I won the lottery tomorrow, I, I would have, you know, I would do it for free. It's just something I believe in. Um, and so, yeah, it was just an important organization for me. Not, not everything feels that way, but certainly something where you take theater into special needs schools and hospitals to these, you know, children and, and to just see the kind of light and ease and wonder it brings these kids is amazing. And the mm -hmm. first time that Dina took me to one of the schools to, to watch it in person, I was just overwhelmed for days. Yeah, I, I've gotten a chance to to see one of the the schools, one of the the presentations in action. You know, with the with the actors and how the the kids react to it, and it's yeah, it's it's a pretty wonderful thing. The the way that they're able to elicit these some sometimes children that are very incapacitated physically, but yet they're able to to bring them out of that shell and ha and still interact with them in, in in a wonderful way. Yeah, it's it's amazing what they do, and it was an honor to to be a part of that organization um, every year. And um, and then of course they put on this amazing uh, event once a year, which is their fundraising event, and it's a huge Broadway show basically. And so that was kind of an easy transition for me to be able to help between Dina, Joe, and myself. I think we know everyone in New York Broadway wise, so. Um, mm -hmm you know, it was pretty easy to, to make that a really good, good show and booking every year. And it sounds like that a company like Only Make Believe, it's easier to publicize, promote them because of the work that they do. Whereas for, you know, an individual actor, he's a great actor. Do the, You know, it just seems like each client is going to have a different approach as far as what will sell them, so to speak. Yeah, and you would think that a group like Only Make Believe would be a really easy sell, but sometimes it's not. It's very strange how that works, you know? It just depends on the the feel in the air, to be honest. Um, and a lot of, a lot of people in now, in current times, it's all about social media following and what celebrity is attached to it. And so that's all, that always comes into play. It's unfortunate that it's not always about exactly what that charitable organization is doing and how much they are helping these children. It's what celebrity can we get to show up hmm. at the Empire State Building or wherever it may be to represent this charity. So it makes things, it can make things very difficult. In working with Only Make Believe, I was able to do some of their their red carpet interviews of of some of these celebrities that uh, that would come through on the red carpet, and they would talk about Only Make Believe. And it was interesting, uh, you know, around half of them maybe knew Dina or knew Joe or or something, you know, say they were they were brought in on a very personal level. But then I would say the other half said, "Well, I know Lisa." <laughs> and so you were definitely a big part of bringing, I guess, the, the glitz and glam to, to that Only Make Believe Gala. Well, thank you. 
Can we just end it right there? And I'm going to use that clip for the rest of my life. (laughs) You got it. So when it comes to these clients, obviously a lot of them are Broadway stars, they're recurring TV characters, you know, they've hit the big time. But for us that that aren't there yet, are there basic steps that we can do to, you know, to take our own careers, to, to promote ourselves? Yeah, that's a, it's a difficult question to answer. Um, I do think it's important to always be trying to self-promote, but kind of goes back to what we were talking about between me and Stan when I was first starting out in PR. You know, there's also a line to not cross so that, quite frankly, you don't look like an asshole, you know? And I think that it is a fine line in this situation where, especially, again, in today's day and age where social media is so important and and just your neighbor down the street is promoting themselves all day long on Instagram and TikTok and whatever is going to turn up tomorrow. And my understanding is casting directors sometimes do look at all those numbers of what people have on social media and tend to go off of that. Certainly for press, there are outlets that go off of how many million followers does somebody have in order to give them a feature in the magazine. Um, I don't agree with all of that, but I get where it's coming from. So that tends to, you know, make... Ensemble members want to be as visible on social media and online as possible. I don't necessarily disagree with that, but I think that there's a way of doing it where you don't, for the lack of a better term, you don't look so thirsty. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? I'm I'm trying to explain this without, without being a real ass. But well, th- well, no, I mean, th- I think it shows up in the audition room that, you know, if you're desperate, if you're just like, give it to me, whatever you need, I'll do it. You know, you're, it, that bending over backwards kind of mentality can show up in an audition and turn off some casting directors. So I think the same can yeah. happen out in the world as you promote yourself. Yeah. And I do think that there's something to be said for quality over quantity. That's not to say you only post once a month, but don't post 10 times a day either. And don't post every single song you've ever sung or every video you've ever danced in. I mean, it's just, it becomes too much and it looks, you know, uh, uh, the thirst is real. It's it's not good. (laughs) It's not a good look. Um, I think there's a happy medium with it. I really do. And I think that one thing to do as well is to go look at social media of people who you admire their career and see what they're doing and how they're using their platforms and get a good idea from that as to how often and how much you should be posting. Um, But as far as like, you know, pre-pandemic at least, there's so many opportunities to get up and do, you know, shows at 54 Below with other people and, you know, or Birdland or wherever it may be where there's like group shows and they're looking for people. I see no problem with anyone trying to promote themselves by, getting into one of those shows to sing a duet or sing a solo and reaching out to people like Jim Caruso at Birdland, who's one of the nicest human beings on the planet and is always looking to give somebody a break. Um, I mean, they're still going on during the pandemic. I mean, bless them. They're doing a great job, but, but still, you know, he had like basically an open mic every Monday night at Birdland and, and those are the kinds of things people need to go to. Now, do they need to have it filmed and put it up on their social? Not necessarily. Do you send it out to casting directors? No. 
but the more experience that you keep doing with those, the more people who will see you in person and somebody like Jim is going to recommend you to someone else. Mm -hmm. I think it's about the networking more so than the constant self-promotion in your face, if that makes sense. And so with that, how important is it to separate our personal and professional lives, yet still maintain this kind of approachable, down-to-earth persona? Yeah, you definitely have to find that balance. And it's up to every individual on how much they feel like they want to really give up of their personal struggles, you know, online. I, I am one to say, I think that you should should be real, so to speak. Um and transparent in a lot of ways. But I also believe that you don't owe anyone any explanation for anything, nor do you, should you feel the need to tell everyone how you're feeling, when you're feeling at the exact minute you're feeling it all day long, every day. You know, I think that there are plenty of things that you can keep private. I I consider myself a relatively private person, but I also think that you know, my, my small social media and certainly I'm not a celebrity, so it's a different category, but I, I think I'm, I'm very realistic and, and real with what I'm putting out there, but I'm also not necessarily talking about every struggle that that's personal that you're going through or your family's going through. I mean, I think that there is something to be said for keeping some privacy, but you know, everyone behaves differently. And if it helps you personally, to put all your stuff out there, um, whether I agree with it or not, it's your choice. And maybe that's the only way you can get through your day. And I feel like a lot of people do feel that way, especially right now during this pandemic. Um, emotions are running really high. People are stuck inside. A lot of people are stuck alone for a very long time. I mean, for me, I, you know, I've been in a 400 square foot studio for, for six months, but, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but you know, the people, the invisible people inside my apartment are talking back. So it's fantastic now. <laughs> um, but so I get it. Everyone reacts and behaves differently. Um, I don't think that telling every single aspect of your personal life online is the best idea. That would be my advice to a client. But again, it's their choice. And do you have advice? Because this certainly, especially with a lot of uh, celebrities, they get into political discussions. And this is on, on either side. Do, again, is that just come down to a personal choice? Or do you have a feeling about how people should tread into that political water? Uh, it does come down to a personal choice. Although, I would say, um, I, I do not give the advice to argue back and forth with anyone online. I think it's a waste of time. And it's a waste of mental space. Mm -hmm. But as far as being active and posting your beliefs and marching and anything else you choose to do to stand up and speak out, I'm 100% for it. And I think that at a certain point in time, you know, it's time to pick a lane and, and show, show who you are and what you stand for. And I, and, and if, if that's going to piss people off, then those probably aren't the people you need to follow you in the first place. Yeah. Whether it's follow you online or follow you in life. That's my personal opinion. Yeah, because as you've, as you've mentioned, and as certainly us performers have seen, that social media following and, and our presence online can 
have somewhat of effect, even indirectly, with the type of things that we're cast in. And so, should we should we temper the kind of things that we say or get involved in, or how much we push one thing or another, in order to kind of toe the line and and not not you know piss anyone off that could eventually hire us? Yeah, I mean it's a, it's an interesting question, and it's certainly one that I think my mom would probably answer differently to you <laughs> based on what I do on social media. <laughs> um, but speaking of the exact day we're in at this moment, uh, I passionately believe that everyone should be speaking out on what they think is right. I do, and but I do think there are ways of doing it where. You know, it's one thing if I, I can't I can't imagine a casting director not hiring you because of who you voted for necessarily. But I think the way you go about it is important. It's one thing to be constantly promoting and telling people to vote and to march and, you know, Black Lives Matter and equal white rights for everyone. And, um, you know, we need justice reform. You maybe you, you believe in, you know, a woman's right to choose or any of these things that can be controversial, but also something I feel very important to speak out on, right. on what your opinion is. Um, but there's a difference between speaking out on it and saying things like, well, fuck you, Trump, or, you know, that guy needs to be shot in the head or those kinds of things. That's not appropriate. Yeah. It's just not appropriate behavior. First of all, it's illegal if you threaten the president, no matter who he is, <laughs> but, and it'll, some people seem to forget that. Um, I just don't think that using, and look, I curse online all the time, but I, not necessarily in this manner. And I just don't, I think you can go after them. You can speak your mind. You can say things without sounding pedestrian. Yeah. And I think that that's whether you're trying to promote yourself as a brand, as an actor, or, or, or whether you're just, you know, Joe Schmo who has an opinion, I think civility matters. That's a perfect way of saying it. If I was more well-spoken and hadn't had zero <laughs> sleep in the past three days, that's exactly what I would have said. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I mean, you mentioned it. What, what, what would be the response that, that your mother would give? You said she would have a completely different answer. Well, you know, my mom tells me not to curse online, which in general, I actually don't. I mean, I have this week, but I usually stick to either, are you fucking kidding me? or you know, the, I use the word ass clown a lot, mm-hmm. <laughs> which my mother uses both of those words constantly. But I really don't think you should curse online in case you piss somebody off. I'm like, okay, well, I get it. And she's totally right. And I should listen to my own advice. But, but again, still not in the manner that I have a problem with, with people saying, you know, fuck this, fuck this. I mean, like just going after people or threatening them or I ju- it, it serves no purpose except for to get you on some sort of list. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, because especially like in Twitter, it, it can just be a dark rabbit hole to go down that there's no way out. Because once you say something, and, and I, I actually noticed this, uh, you know, some people respond, but I would say more often than not, whether whether they're people on TV or, or theater, they'll they'll put their position out there, usually well represented, and then there'll be all this like backlash or this or like, I hate this, or I agree with it. And rarely do they ever respond to any of it. They just put it out there and then let the Twitter trolls go crazy, whatever they're going to do. Correct. And that would be my advice to anybody. I think you should put it out there and put it out there eloquently and let it lie. 
Yeah. You don't go back and argue with anyone. And if somebody comes at you and says something horrible or is threatening you, it's very, very quick to push that block button. Yeah, exactly. And so how is it best that in this crazy little world right now, this crazy time, how can we best promote and, and publicize our own selves? Is it is really just, is it social media? Is that the only way? Or are there other more traditional ways at this time? Um, I think it's social media. I think it's um, trying to get involved in places where you, if you're, if you're someone who is able to teach, um, where you can teach classes online, um, certainly for acting and, and singing, um, dance is a little harder. Um, there are plenty of places now that colleges are back in. They're looking for guest lecturers. Hmm. There are ways of reaching out to colleges to, you know, talk about, I'd love to come online and talk to your musical theater class about, you know, what it is to be in New York and that kind of thing. I mean, these are easy things to do. They're going to keep you busy, going to be something that you'll probably really enjoy and, and keep you working, so to speak. I mean, there's money involved in it. Um, I think if you can get in on a online reading of any sort, whether it's for charity or not, that's a great thing to do. You know, what Seth Rudetsky is doing over at Stars in the House is fantastic for the Actors Fund. You know, Seth's the kind of guy that, like, you could send him a, a message on social media and say, hey, this is who I am, and and this was the last show I was in, and here's where I'm at now, and if you end up doing a play that I might be right for, will you please consider me? I don't think that there's a problem with doing that with anyone, to be honest. One email, hmm. one message. Don't send seven. One. And I think that you would be surprised at the response you'll get. Seth is going to be so happy of the deluge of emails he's going to get. <laughs> <laughs> I know. He's going to call me later yelling at me. But Seth is somebody who supports people. And again, that's why I said one email, not seven. But, yeah. but, right. but you know, I think that everyone wants to help everyone else out. Yeah, you know, doing those kinds of things. Think outside the box. What are some things that you can do that can kind of help you with your craft at the same time, make you feel like you're working? I mean, I have a friend of mine is head of the musical theater department at Shenandoah, and he's always looking for people to come in and teach a virtual class or give a lecture or something like that. Now Kevin Colbert is going to Everyone's, everyone's going to go after Kevin Covert now. There you go. Shout out for Kevin. Um, but, you know, there's so many university programs and conservatory programs. So I think, yeah, you got to just start thinking outside the box. And I don't think that social media is your only outlet. And I think you tread lightly on social media. You also don't want to constantly be posting some sort of headshot or TBT to, you know, 15 years ago when you sang at blah, blah, blah. It, it can't be all day, every day with that, because then you also read just completely numb to the outside world, I think. Hmm. And I don't think that's a smart move either. But you can promote yourself and recognize the situation the country and world is in at the same time. It's finding that balance. It's it's certainly celebrating work you have done, but also celebrating the work you want to do, celebrating the work others are doing, not just in theater, but in, in this area or that cause or whatever. It's, yeah, it's it's about um, kind of what we were saying before about presenting yourself as this, as this well-rounded whole person and not just all I do is sing. Yeah, you know? totally. 
And it might be nice, like you said, to promote other people. Like, do you have friends that have, you know, done a concert lately virtually or something like that? Like, maybe promote somebody else on your social for once, you know? It's okay to do that, too. In the previous episode, I talked with Broadway music director Nate Patton about the Tony Award nominations and their place in this current state of theater. We talked about some of the statements that were put out by the nominees, which is often the work of publicists like Lisa. But this has certainly been far from a normal Broadway season or Tony nominating process. So how has her work changed this year? Uh, Not much, because most of my shows had not opened. (laughs) Uh, Well, there's that. (laughs) So, yeah. um, North Country opened, but they're not being... I had two clients in that, Mark Kudish and Kimber Elaine Sprawl. Um, I had How I Learned to Drive. I had Diana. I had um, Mrs. Doubtfire. All the rest of my spring shows had not opened. Um, But yeah, I don't... You know... I don't know how it's going to change as far as campaigning. There's only so much you can do. And also, do you really want to, no one has any money. And do you want to take money from somebody who has no money to campaign? Or, you know, I don't know. It it might be nice if all the publicists who know each other kind of got got together on a giant Zoom and got involved and kind of made ground rules of like, okay, here's what we are and aren't going to do. I think that would be a smart idea. But, uh, (laughs) you know. The likelihood of that happening. Yeah. Theater itself, whether it's Broadway, off-Broadway, the regional, it, it, there seems to be no cohesive leadership on that. It's it's very piecemeal as far as what's going to open, what's not going to open. There are different communities and markets are trying to figure out a way. And Actors' Equity has, you know, they, they haven't been exactly uh, forthcoming with guidelines nor really receptive to a lot of theaters opening. So it's, it's been really tough to, to figure out where is theater going to fit into this new COVID world. I, I mean, not to be the voice of doom. It's just that I think theater will 100% come back, but it won't come back until after there is a, a tried and true vaccine and enough people get it and then start feeling safe enough to be able to go back inside places and sit next to each other and, and have enough money to buy a ticket to a show. So, I mean, I, realistically, I think that everybody's looking at next summer for Broadway to come back. And I would think most theaters, I understand that there's some regional theaters that are doing outside productions and, you know, I give them credit for trying. I don't know that's something I would want to participate in or want my clients to participate in, but I err on the side of, I, I don't want you to get sick. Right. So, and I don't think that there's ever going to be an end of theater. This is a horrible, horrible time. And it's going to be horrible for, for a bit longer, but there's always going to be people who want to be in theater and there's always going to be people with money. And those people are going to want to own a theater or be a producer. And, you know, it may be a whole different group of people that we're dealing with who are coming in to take over, you know, putting up money for Broadway shows. But there will they will be there. We just have to be patient. And it's all relative. But you just really have to think about the fact that right now your only goal is not to get sick and not to die, not to have your family get sick and not to have one of them die and try and figure out a way that you can, you know, take care of yourself mentally, physically, 
and pay your bills and rent and just get through this. And we just have to get over to the other side and it's going to be okay. And that's very difficult on some days, you know, but that's the bottom line of it. And uh, theater's not dead. Theater will come back. It just might be a year from now. Yeah. Um, I, I do understand that it's very difficult, especially living in the city. If you have no income, um, most people don't put away savings for two years or a year and a half. I mean, it's just insanity. It's all insanity. Um, so I don't fault anyone for having to leave for personal or financial reasons. And I think that those people will come back. I do. I think most of them will. I think that there is a small contingent of people that um, both New York and LA that maybe have not had the success that they, that they expected in their career. And they've been looking for a reason to leave New York or LA and move somewhere else for an easier life. Um, and they're using this as their excuse to themselves of why they need to leave. And I, and I say, you know, God bless you. <laughs> I hope it works out for the best. I don't fault those people either. I mean, you got to do what you have to do for yourself. Yeah, well, I, I can certainly say of the people that are in my my circle, and and this would be the 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 non stars, the ensemble part. I, I will say that there have been a, you know, a sizable. I wouldn't say a majority, but a sizable contingency of them that have left the city and are uncertain if they would ever come back. And some of it is is just the financial, like I'm out of work, so I got to do something else. But then others of them are like, I don't know if I then want to come back and try to restart and pick it all up again. Right. You know, and so I, I, I think maybe on, as you get past those that are at a certain echelon, once you get a little below that, you may have a lot of turnover. Yeah, you may. Um, and again, no judgment. I, I think that everyone has to do what's best for them. Yeah. It's very difficult mentally. And I'm sure that's playing a huge part in these people saying, I don't know if I want to come back and start all over again, because you're not in a good mental space to even think about that right now. You've just left. You've just given up on what you feel like you've just given up on the dream that you had and the life that you had. So you're in a bad place to begin with. And I get that. You can't think positive towards what's going to happen next year. I do think that once we get through this and get over to the other side, and again, I am no Pollyanna, um, but I think that once they're in a better spot and they see that business is coming back, a lot of people will have a different attitude about that and, and really be excited about coming back and starting to re-audition. I do. I hope so too. Like I would hope somebody is not giving up on their dream because of this, you know, it's, um, and I think I'm also proof of that. Like, you know, shit happens, life happens, horrible things happen and you have to adjust and like be grateful yeah. for your health and, and the fact that you're gone, but you're healthy and you can come back. And if you want to, you will. You know, I was gone for a while and as soon as I was able to come back, boom. But if you had asked me when I first left, like, okay, are you going to come back? I'm sure my answer would have been no. Yeah. You can barely see three months ahead, much less six months or a year ahead. I mean, we have to try and figure out a way just to get through waking up to going to bed. And just keep track of what day is it? (laughs) I have a, I have a, this is going to make me sound like such an old lady. I have a pill case that's days of the weeks <laughs> for my <laughs> medications for my tummy. And so that actually helps me because I can see, oh, it's Tuesday. 
Boy, if that doesn't put you in the unfuckable category, I don't know what does. <laughs> so basically what you're saying is we all need to find some pills that we can take every day to just keep us going as well as know what day it is. Yes, that sounds horrible. It sounds like I'm pushing <laughs> some sort of illegal drugs. This is like acid medication. Everybody calm down. <laughs> Well, no matter how you're keeping up with your days, I'm so grateful that you found time to join me and Lisa today for our conversation. She really gave some good tips that I'm certainly going to put to use myself, ways that I can put myself out there, network with others, and find projects to stay busy. One of my biggest projects, of course, over the last several months since theater shut down has been this podcast. And while getting behind the microphone and talking with guests like Lisa has been really enjoyable and insightful, it has been even more rewarding to know how these episodes have helped you and benefited your life or career. One listener from Australia, she reached out to me and was so thoughtful and gracious that I wanted to share her message with you. Her name is Catherine Lee, and she left me this voice message. I would just like to say I love this podcast. I enjoy taking time out of my week and just listen to people talk about the realities of the arts because aspiring actors like me can listen to people discuss their experiences, the advice they have received and can give. The different episodes have educated me on a lot of different areas of theatre. Me being me only originally paid attention to the actors and the music instead of things like the writing process and how a show came to be. The number of writers and producers that have been on the cast has introduced me to a whole new side of theatre and has made me think about all the things that are possible through performing arts. I hope that this podcast continues this way so it can educate and inform more people who are interested in the same topic. Thank you so much, Catherine. I certainly plan on releasing episodes for as long as possible and... Your kind words are a big, huge motivation to keep this podcast going. I'm just so glad that I could share your message in an episode. And actually, I plan on doing more of this in the future. So feel free to leave your own message by going to the website, winmepodcast.com, and filling out the contact form or leaving a voice message like Catherine did. I'll certainly be finding episodes in the future to share those messages with all my listeners. Well, that just about does it for me today. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones. I also write, edit, and record the episode. Dylan Adams is the booking producer. Music in this episode provided by Pottington Bear and Blue Dot Sessions. And in the next episode, we'll be tackling something that Malcolm Gladwell actually popularized, the 10,000-hour rule. I have a couple of psychologists who have their own thoughts on this particular rule and some data and experience to back it up. So join me next time on the podcast as we talk more about why I'll never make it. <laughs>